Guardhouse is excited to be a strategic partner of ASIAL and a key sponsor of the ASIAL podcast series. This collaboration signifies our dedication to innovation and connecting with industry leaders. Together, we're shaping the future of the security sector. Join over 250 of Australia's leading security companies who trust Guardhouse, the premier workforce management system designed for the physical security business landscape. Be part of the movement setting new standards in the industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And our guest once again today is Chris Delaney, Industrial Relations Manager for ASIAL. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, John. Good to be here. Now, Chris, there are, there's a lot going on that we're going to try and cover today. There's a bill currently before Parliament, and this is Labor's third tranche of significant industrial relations reforms since they've been elected. And almost every aspect of this bill will have an impact on employers in the security industry. There's a couple of different changes here that we want to discuss around things like using casuals, contractors versus employees, labour hire, same job, same pay, and to a lesser degree, wage theft and industrial manslaughter, both of which will now include increased penalties and possible incarceration. Can you tell us a bit about the changes specifically to, uh, let's start with casuals. Yeah, thanks, John. There are, you know, this this bill uh, came in, into uh, to Parliament on Monday. Uh, the Labor Party have been very keen to push it through as quickly as possible, and we found out this afternoon that it's being held up in the Senate, uh, and there may not be too much happening before before early next year. But you know, in terms of of, of these issues that you've talked about. Uh, the protective services sector of the industry really relies heavily on casuals. So, you know, it's one of those on-demand type industry parts of the industry where you you can't have lots of full-time employees sitting around waiting for, for work. Now, you'll probably recall in the last couple of years we've had issues with, uh, with the High Court uh, and some definitions uh, arising out of Rosado and work, uh, work Pack and a couple of other cases, uh, they changed the way we look at casuals. And uh, the federal government at the time uh, decided that they needed to change the Fair Work Act to fix that up. Uh, and really you know, what happened there was that there was a heavy reliance on what the contract said was the relationship rather than what happened in reality. Now, the new definition is that we're going back to the future, if you like. <laughs> the new definition uh, will go back to that that old way of looking at things, right? So they're going to they're going to try to look at the characterization of a casual based on the the presence or absence of a firm commitment to continuing and uh, and indefinite work, and there will be assessment tools that the Fair Work Commission will be expected to use, excuse me, <clears throat> to, uh, uh, to to assess whether or not, if there's a dispute, whether or not a person is a casual or a permanent or a permanent part-time employee. The sorts of things that they're going to look at is whether there was a mutual understanding or expectation between the employer and the employee. Uh, whether the employee has an ability to accept or reject work and whether the employer has an ability to provide work on a regular or systematic basis. 
they're going to look at the future of uh, the future availability of work, and they will also look at a regular pattern of work. Now, the I'll probably use the term regular and systematic. That's because I can't get that out of my head. It's yeah. been around for a long while. Um, the this new legislation talks about a regular pattern of work, but the definition of pattern is not something that you're going to get in the concise Oxford Dictionary, and it's not something you'll see in Webster's or anywhere else. And even if you do look at a thesaurus, you're not going to find a definition quite like the one that's in the Fair Work in this new Fair Work Amendment Bill. It's very rubbery. Uh, and in my way of thinking, it is going to require a, uh, a, a a court to determine exactly what that is. We had a bit of a, a glimpse of that a little while ago uh, with a case of a Bunnings employee, uh, a university student who'd worked on and off over a period of time, not regularly, not systematically, but regularly and systematically enough for the Fair Work Commission to decide that that there was a continuing relationship. So we're going to see more of that out of this particular um, uh, this particular definition of casuals coming through. So it's going to change. Excuse me. Um, so we'll also see we've got casual conversion in the uh, in the awards now. We'll also see a, a, a different approach to casual conversion. Uh, employees with six months service who, who feel that they've worked systematically and, and regularly uh, will have an opportunity to apply for permanency, whereas before the employer had to offer it. Uh, if you work for somebody who's got less, uh, less than 15 employees, then uh, that's a small business and the casual would need to have worked for them for 12 months in order to uh, to make the application. Okay. Now, there seems to be a theme here in some of the other legislation uh, uh, like that. Uh, if the employer refuses uh, uh, an employee who's applied for uh, casual conversion, they must do so in writing. They must do so within 21 days. Uh, and there needs to have been some attempt proved uh, that there was a consultation at the workplace. And the Fair Work Commission can make orders uh, if they believe that uh, this person should be a casual, uh, even if the uh, the employer opposes it. So if if there's a dispute before the Commission, they will have the uh, the opportunity to deal with that dispute. Okay. So then what's happening with regard to independent contractors and ABN holders? How has this changed? Yeah, you know, similarly to uh, what happened with casuals, uh, a couple of years ago in the, in the High Court, a decision was made on the basis, again, of the contract. Is this a contract between an independent contractor and a, and a, uh, a, a principal contractor? If that's what the contract says, then that's what it is. That's going to be overturned again, and we'll go back to that old multifactorial test. In other words, looking at all of the factors that contribute towards the relationship. What we used to call the duck test, you know, if it quacks and it waddles and it's got feathers, it's a duck. 
you can call it a rooster if you want to, but it's still a duck. Yeah. So in this context, we'll be going back to that test. You know, if if they supply labour only, uh, if they don't have tools, if they're not providing some specialist service, chances are that that independent contractor and in the context of security, ABN holder, uh, will be deemed to be an employee for the purposes of the legislation. And quite frankly, I don't see that as too much of a bad thing. Um, you know, th those sorts of relationships are usually sham arrangements developed to avoid uh, all of the uh, all of the benefits that an employee might have. Well, I, I guess one of the questions I have around this is: is how does that dovetail back into wage theft? Because if I know I'm meant to be paying someone. $45 an hour, but I'm paying them $18 now because they've got an ABN and they're contracting to me and I know I'm doing the wrong thing. Is that not some form of wage theft? No, it is absolutely wage theft. And the legislation deals with that. In fact, a little bit further in our, our discussion, I can, I can deal with that. Um, but yes, it would be wage theft. If you're knowingly involved in, in that situation uh, and you've set it up yourself, it'll be deemed to be wage theft and you could find yourself either in jail or with a very serious fine. So those sorts of situations we were seeing to some degree during hotel quarantine a couple of years ago where we saw these messages going out via group chat going, hey, do you want security work? All you need to do is provide an ABN and we'll give you work where they were getting paid under award that that's designed to stop that kind of thing from happening? Absolutely. It is designed to stop that, um, and hopefully it will. Because when you, when you do that in the security industry, you're stopping good employers from getting work. Because unfortunately, clients often in our industry just look at price. They don't look at the legalities of it. Yeah, okay. Now, earlier in the discussion, we mentioned labour hire or same job, same pay. What has the government decided to do with this? Because this same job, same pay thing is just a disaster waiting to happen. It's a very messy situation. I totally agree that it is a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, the, the aim of all of this is to ensure that labour hire workers aren't used to undercut direct employees. But how they're approaching it uh, creates a lot of concern. Um, the proposal appears to go beyond labour hire and might affect other arrangements like providing a security guard to, to a shopping centre or an alarm installer on a construction site. And what, what the government seems to be saying is if the host employer has an enterprise bargaining agreement uh, and that enterprise bargaining agreement includes a classification or an employer, employee, direct employee doing certain work, and you provide an employee of yours to do similar work, then you must pay in accordance with that host employer's enterprise bargaining agreement. That's got all sorts of legal tangles to it. And how the government's going to do that is going to be a very, very interesting situation. But what they're trying to do is, is simply this. Large, some very large organisations, airlines, 
mining industry have their own internal labour hire companies and where they might have a site where uh, they've negotiated an enterprise bargaining agreement and the rates of pay might be $60, $70 an hour, they might also have a, an enterprise bargaining agreement for their labour hire section at $50 an hour. So they pump all of those people into the into the jobs that uh, and save themselves money. That's what this seems to be aimed at, but it's a scattergun approach the way the legislation is written, and hopefully that will get sorted out in the Senate committee and, and some discussions will take place and amendments to it. It's just a little bit too broad. Yeah, look, I, I can understand in principle the underlying concept behind what they're trying to do. But if we were to take this and apply it to other related industries, I mean, if you've got a bunch of cable pullers on site with a, a certified aid grade electrician who also happens to be helping the cable pullers, what do you do? Do you pay the cable pullers the same rate as a certified A grade electrician just because they're doing the same job at that moment in time? I mean, there just seem to be too many things in this that just don't work. Yeah, and that's what worries us. Um, you know, what is like for like? I mean, a cabler obviously isn't an A-grade electrician and doesn't have an electrician's licence. Even even alarm in, an alarm installer hasn't got the right to do anything with 240 volts but can operate in the electronic side. Well, very often they they might both be capable of doing the same work, but you're not going to you're not going to get an electrician to do an alarm install at his rate of pay. No. You know, you, you, you bring in a specialist to do some short-term work on a job site and then they go away again. And that's what we want to make sure doesn't happen. Yeah. Because, because, you know, part of the upshot of all of that is that if it forces people to have direct employees instead of business-to-business -business services – there's a hell of a lot of businesses are going to go out of business. Yeah. You know, they just won't have the clients. Yeah. So it's it's great to stop people being shonky, and we applaud that. But when you've got, you know, it's a bit like saying, look, Jimmy did something bad in class. The whole class is going to suffer for it. Yeah. We're going to keep everybody back after school, right? And we want Jimmy to get into trouble. Perhaps he can go on detention, but we don't want the rest of the class going on detention. Yeah. That might not be a great example, but it's it's that scattergun approach that hits everybody. Yep. I understand where you're going. So let's circle back to the wage theft thing for a minute because surely this is going to be a significant challenge for employers in the security industry because – there's two kinds of groups that fall are going to get caught up in this legislation, as I understand it. There are those who are making genuine mistakes, in which case that's what ASIO's there for. You need to go and talk to people and get the right advice. But then there are people who are just deliberately doing the wrong thing. So, I mean, what's this going to look like moving forward? Well, I we've got wage theft... Uh, in Victoria uh, legislation, we've got wage theft legislation in Queensland. 
I don't, I haven't seen any indication from either of those sets of legislation that the genuine mistake uh, by somebody who has uh, you know, tried to do the right thing is going to end up in a, in a criminal situation or a serious fine. I don't see that from this legislation. Uh, it didn't happen in Victoria, hasn't happened in Queensland. I don't think it's likely to happen here. Uh, but remember, for it to be a criminal offence, it can't be dealt with by the Fair Work Commission. They don't have that power. It can be referred to the AFP, Federal Police, or somebody like that from the Fair Work Ombudsman, and that's the Ombudsman's job to look at those sorts of things. And there are some opportunities within the legislation to uh, reach agreements uh, about underpayment of wages and, and uh, you know, fix the problem uh, and for the Fair Work Ombudsman to make an assessment as to whether something should be sent off to, uh, uh, to, um, uh, for criminal charges. So, but, uh, you know, you could get 10 years jail out of it. <laughs> I mean, that ain't much, much fun. No. Uh, so so the, what, uh, what uh, Burke, the uh, Minister for, in, uh, for Workplace Relations, has said uh, is that this is meant to be a deterrent, uh, nothing more than that. Uh, and it may be for some people, but when you look at the whole package, uh, you know, the bit on independent contractors, the bit on casuals and so on, uh, the whole package is built around getting people to do the right thing. It just needs, in my view, a little bit of tightening up. You know, uh, if there's an underpayment, you can you can be uh, fined, pay three times the amount of the underpayment or 1.5 million bucks uh, for an individual, 7.825 million for a, uh, a corporate uh, and... Uh, you can get yourself into a fair bit of trouble. But the Fair Work Ombudsman will have the discretion not to pursue criminal proceedings if there's self-disclosure, for instance, or if they believe that it was a genuine error. Yeah. And that's key, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, they've been making quite a bit of noise about this over the last week where they're saying these penalties won't apply if we can see that or if you're able to demonstrate that it was a genuine error and you have made a, a reasonable effort to try and make reparations. Yeah, you know, look, if you've made a mistake about how you apply allowances, uh, you've read the award, you've got copies of information uh, and there's still some question mark about it, um, the Fair Work Ombudsman will have a look at that and decide whether or not you've you've gone about trying to find out the best information, uh, you know, from somebody like ASIL, an industry association, a lawyer or whatever. Um, but if you've been reckless about it, excuse me, <clears throat> if you've been reckless about it and you, uh, and you've, you know that, uh, that there's a problem and you haven't dealt with it, you've just let it roll. Uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll I'll just keep my head down and nothing's going to happen to me. Um, if the Fair Work Ombudsman believes that that's the way you've behaved, then you won't uh, you, you won't be in good shape. You might end up uh, in jail. It'll be rare, 
but it could happen. Yep. They'll be the worst case scenarios. And as you mentioned before, John, remember we were talking about uh, independent contractors. Yep. Um, if you uh, if you don't have a defence that can demonstrate that you've reasonably reasonably believed that the contract was a contract for services, uh, then uh, you'll you'll be in trouble as well. And that'll be hard to do when it's an independent contractor just supplying labour. That'll yeah. be very hard to do. I would defy anyone to to tell me how, uh, in the instance of a security officer doing basic security work, how that could be an independent contractor. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that that's not going to pass the duck test. It certainly doesn't pass the pub test. Yeah. Now, while we're on the question of uh, of potential criminal charges, uh, what's happening with industrial manslaughter? Well, you're probably aware that there are states with industrial manslaughter legislation. Um, Queensland, for instance, uh, there have been people go to jail uh, in in Queensland, um, not not for very long periods of time. You know, a, a, a a person can go to jail for 25 years as an individual under this legislation. But again, you would have to be very, very reckless in how you deal with your employees to end up like that. But you could have some serious penalties, anywhere from three to $15 million for a body corporate, 600000 to $3 million for a, a PCBU, person conducting a business or undertaking. Now, this will end up in the work health and safety legislation. So, you know, people need to think about that. I haven't seen anything in our industry, not even in cash in transit, where uh, it's been a long time, thank goodness, since anybody was seriously hurt. Um, I haven't seen anything in our industry that would bring about that sort of issue. But we have to be, uh, we have to be very careful about how we, uh, how we keep our employees safe at work. And they, look, I know it sounds like rhetoric when you hear it from politicians, but people should be able to leave home and arrive back home safely when they're going about their daily work. They should be able to go back to their families. And if if this sort of legislation gives them an opportunity to do that more than they can now, then it's not a bad thing. I guess one of the questions I would ask around this point, though, because there's probably going to be people listening to this that may not necessarily understand the distinction of what industrial manslaughter is. And, Chris, you may not be able to answer this in a timely fashion on a podcast, but... You know, when you're talking, I, I, I worry about these questions because now we're straying into the area of giving legal advice, which we obviously don't want to do and we're not trying to do on this podcast. If you want legal advice, you need to go and see a, a qualified legal professional. But, <coughs> pardon me, where does it, where's that line between employee negligence and industrial manslaughter? Because if I've got five guardrails on a machine as an employee and I remove them all to try and stomp the bit of wood down into the grinder and I end up getting myself sucked in and turned into paste, 
is that industrial manslaughter or is that I'm just being an idiot? John, I am not the person to answer that question. Fair enough. Um, like you, a, a reasonable person would expect that that is, that is not industrial manslaughter. But those sorts of things are looked at very closely by courts and they look at what, uh, you know, what all of the circumstances are. You know, you could say, did we make it difficult for him to remove those barriers or did we make it easy? Is it custom and practice that they move, remove those barriers and the boss knows about it and didn't do anything about it? I, look, there'll be 150 questions that would go before a court uh, to deal with all of that, and, and each one of those cases would be dealt with on its individual merits. Yeah. What we should be concentrating on is not determining what is and what isn't industrial manslaughter, but what is and what isn't good practice and good training and proper care of our employees. If we worry about that end of it, the other end of it isn't going to affect us. Yeah, that's a good point. So what else is changing? There's a fair bit going on. Is there anything else that we need to cover? Yeah, look, there are a lot of things that are changing. Um, in this bill, the uh, union delegates will have a, a greater right uh, and it'll be a workplace right under the general protections provision of the Act uh, to paid time for training uh, and to represent the industrial interests of the union and its potential members, potential members, not just members. And if you take action, adverse action against a union delegate for doing those things, you might find yourself in court with an ad, uh, a general protections provisions uh, case against you. And remember, those cases have unlimited damages. So these are protections for union members. And they'll also be entitled to reasonable access to communicate with employees uh, and potential members about matters of industrial concern and access to workplace facilities like uh, you know, photocopiers and uh, you know, computers and, and, and so on in order to do their work. That's going to be tricky and we're not going to get a full understanding of all of that until we have a few cases where people complain that they've they've been treated unfairly as a result of being a union delegate or they've been uh, refused access to uh, to those reasonable facilities that they would expect in the workplace that will cause some conflict I'm not sure how heavy that will be in our industry it certainly will be in other industries but uh, that remains to be seen. So an employer won't be able to unreasonably fail or refuse to deal with a workplace delegate or knowingly or recklessly, and those words are in almost everything, knowingly and recklessly. They won't be able to knowingly or recklessly make a false or misleading representation. In other words, they can't tell lies to a, to a union delegate or unreasonably hinder, obstruct or prevent the exercise of those rights by the union delegate. That's going to be very interesting, probably more in the construction industry than anywhere else. Okay. And that those sorts of things, uh, conditions will be put into modern awards. And unions will have a greater right of entry into your workplace. Whereas at the moment, they have to give you 24 hours notice that they want to enter the workplace. They can go to the Fair Work Commission for an exemption certificate, waive that 24 hours notice, 
if they can show that there is a suspected underpayment of wages. Right. So, so that's that's just another part of all of this. And, of course, you know, we've had the first and second tranche already, and some of those things haven't really been bedded down properly as well. So an enormous amount of change in in industrial relations this year, and it will continue that way for the next 12 months to two years until we get a good understanding of how it all rolls out. Okay. Well, it sounds like there's quite a bit going on. Uh, I mean, when can we expect, you You touched on it then, but when can we expect to have a clearer picture of, of what all this is going to mean and how it's going to pan out? Well, I think I mentioned earlier that, uh, I may have mentioned it, but uh, this bill is now with the Senate. The Senate has decided that there are some complex issues surrounding the bill and it needs wide-ranging consultation with multiple stakeholders. So it's likely to be held up until at least first first quarter of 2024. Right. And there may be some changes, uh, but I suspect that there won't be an enormous amount of changes. This, uh, this bill passed by the House of Reps. The Senate's got it. Um, David Pocock, uh, Jackie Lambie, uh, and the, uh, 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 well, another, another couple of independents uh, have voted with the uh, coalition uh, that it should be, uh, it should be uh, before a bills committee uh, and a report back uh, in November. That will push it out to early next year, I would think. But by and large, this bill's going to come in the way the way it is right now. Uh, ASIL's got uh, the bill and the memorandum of understanding, a memorandum of uh, 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 the, th- the the whole bill on its website. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, some seven hundred odd pages of it, which I've been. Uh, lucky enough to read, he says, um, <laughs> with tongue in cheek. Uh, there's a lot in there, um, but uh, it is worth looking at if you're an employer. And ASIL's got other uh, information on the website about it. People can talk to me about it. I'll be staying across it as much as I possibly can uh, every day. Um, and uh, as uh, as things change... As we get more information, we'll roll it out to our members. Okay. For those members of the uh, of ASIL who aren't looking for a cure for insomnia by reading a 700-page industrial relations bill, will you be holding breakfast briefings on any of this stuff sort of moving forward or, or is there going to be things that ASIL will be doing to help keep its members up to date? Oh, absolutely. We... we uh... We have a breakfast briefing on the 21st in South Australia, on the 22nd in Perth, uh, yeah, the 22nd in Perth, uh, the following week in the ACT. Uh, there are later breakfast meetings in other states and places where we'll, we'll certainly talk about this. Uh, we've had earlier briefings about the first and second tranche uh, and we'll keep going with that all the time. But we put out bulletins. Uh, 
watch the first alert that comes out once a fortnight. We put information in that. Use the ASIA app. Uh, if you haven't got it, download it. Uh, there are plenty of ways that you can get information out of ASIL. And, of course, there's always, if you want to talk directly to me, um, uh, it's uh, ir at asil.com.au. That's my uh, my email address. And I uh, I do try to talk to every member that we can. Uh, we've got nearly 3,000 members, so uh, it can be a bit tricky at times, but I'll get back to you as quickly as I can. Great. Well, Chris, thank you very much for taking the time to go through that with us. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, the Google Play Store, and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure. Guardhouse is excited to be a strategic partner of ASIL and a key sponsor of the ASIL podcast series. This collaboration signifies our dedication to innovation and connecting with industry leaders. Together, we're shaping the future of the security sector. Join over 250 of Australia's leading security companies who trust Guardhouse, the premier workforce management system designed for the physical security business landscape. Be part of the movement setting new standards in the industry.